Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Purpose Podcast. I'm Alex, the founder of 195. We're a London-based startup that designs eco-conscious and unisex travel goods. We launched The Purpose Podcast so you can get to know the people, stories and challenges behind some of the most exciting brands that have a purpose at the heart of their business. If you've got aspirations or plans to launch your own business and make a positive impact, then you're in the right place for insights and advice. Today's guest is John Pritchard, founder of award-winning sunglasses brand Parlor Eyewear. They launched in 2016 with a priority to give back. Whether that's through Parlor's commitment to sustainable design or their long-term partnerships in Africa to support and provide eye care programs. In this episode, I'm excited to hear about John's personal experience that inspired him to launch Parlor Eyewear, what it means to be a registered B Corp, and get his advice for other startups that would like to work with charities and NGOs. So with that in mind, John, welcome to the Purpose Podcast. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thanks very much for the uh, very very glowing uh, introduction, so much appreciated. And yeah, I appreciate uh, the chance to, to have a conversation today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, how's, how's things going for you at the moment? Yeah, not bad. Um, it's as we are only uh, a sort of a sunglasses brand, we're obviously very sort of beholden to the seasonality. So in the UK this time of year, it's sort of things drop off and when we have to sort of fight for the uh, the Australian and US kind of southern uh, sort of US sunbelt sort of markets and, and try and get sort of bigger and bolder out there. So we're, we're forever chasing the sun, so to speak. But um, we've also got some optical and blue light frames coming out next year. So planning on those designs at the moment. So Always a lot going on, as anyone will tell you, when you're sort of in a startup new business. Very cool. I like it. Um, although, I, although I must admit, I guess we're probably all chasing the sun right now with what sort of eight, eight, 18 months of, of it being challenging to travel. So hopefully there's there's plenty of people planning for some winter sun and ultimately wearing your sunglasses as well. Well, yeah, I can, I can I'll fully support anyone who wants to... Uh, take sunglasses on their holidays it's uh, yeah the travel market is is clearly a, a decent market for us and a lot of people have have sort of obviously been doing staycations in the UK and and as much as I like to think that UK is the sunniest place on the planet it probably isn't so the more that uh, these sort of international routes open up uh, potentially the better for our for our sunglass sales yeah and we, yeah, we, we, we can certainly relate to that one too after uh after 18 months of uh, pretty much shutting down global travel. John, I'm really keen to uh, jump in and go right back to, oh, I'd, I'd say 2016, but probably even before that. So um, would love to know a bit more about you know, what sparked the mission to, to ultimately to launch Parlor Eyewear and, and sort of have that commitment at the heart to, to drive a positive change. Sure. Um, I mean, yes, I registered. We've been trading for about five years, but I registered the business back in 2011, so more than 10 years ago. And uh, I guess if you're looking for a sort of a, a line in the sand, um, I used to work at Microsoft before um, doing Parler full time. And uh, we had a conference over in the US and one of the guest speakers way back, you know, way back when was uh, Blake Mikoski. Um, the founder of Tom Shoes, and he was there talking about putting a social cause at the heart of his business, and and that just really connected with me. And I thought, no, that's that's fantastic. You know, we're working for a business where it's not just about the physical product that you're selling. There's far more to it. And I guess that just got my my brain working. And I had a lovely time at Microsoft. They look after you very well, and it's quite an entrepreneurial environment. Uh, a lot of people, you know, go off and do their own things. 
and I ended up being one of those people. I, I wanted to inject more purpose into my my life and, and have uh, more impact than just sort of effectively taking money from one big company and giving it, giving it to another, which was which effectively was all the role I was doing. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was quite some time in incubation as an idea. Uh, and I did side by side, as I think a lot of people have to do when you're starting up, starting up a business. Uh, and then one day you just decide to make that full time jump because it, does, it just starts to take over your life. Uh, and you therefore need to be fully committed and, and back yourself. And, and that was sort of 2016 when I say we we actually went live and, and started selling to the rest of the world. Really like it. So how did you know when to make that jump? Well, I mean, I guess that's often, it's kind of like that nervy moment when you you, you cut ties with that, um, uh, that, that, that guaranteed monthly salary coming into the bank account. So how did you know when to make that move? And ultimately, how did you feel at the time? <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, a, I guess there's a kind of a tipping point. I mean, for me, it was, you know, it, trying to do something which had purpose was becoming a bigger, bigger, bigger and bigger itch, so to speak. And I, I just felt that you know, I needed to make a move on that sooner rather than later. And actually, back around 2016, there were some uh, redundancies going on. And I thought, okay, so I've been here 10 years, I could maybe take advantage of this. And uh, I sort of uh, put my <laughs> put my hat in the ring, and uh, and got paid out. So using that money really was the impetus for me to be able to you know say right I can go 12, 18 months without having to pay myself a, or to earn a salary, uh, and then see where I am after that. And so yes, it was one was obviously the call of feeling that I just needed to to act sooner rather than later, not to let my you know life or career drift, and then. To obviously, I, there was a there was a financial sort of moment which which made it uh, seem to be the right time. It's really interesting because actually we've got very similar paths into what we do now. Actually, so my background was within tech and and the sort of the corporate world. So initially with IBM and then more recently with Dropbox and mm. uh, in exactly the same sense as you uh, took a redundancy package and then opted to reinvest that that funding into into one nine five. Yeah, perfect. Brilliant. How how was it at the time? I guess when you when you start to tell friends and family that this is the big plan, is it panic stations or people very supportive? <laughs> Not really. No, I mean if you think about it, it say I registered back in two thousand and ten, sorry, two thousand eleven. Uh, so everyone knew about it. It was just the when rather than the big surprise. Oh, I'm just going to go off and do this. Um, you know, it, it's probably the, the longest thought out spontaneous decision you could ever have, really. But uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was uh, family supported. Um, and and I was, what was I at the time? Well, I was 48, I'm going to do terrible maths here, but what, 42, 43. So at a stage in my life where I think you can, you can go off and try something, you can make mistakes and, and you can still recover from those. I think if you leave it, yeah too much later you know if you're sort of in your 50s and 60s you know trying to do something and and it doesn't maybe pay off then then it's a bit harder maybe to fall back into the system so um yeah it just just felt like everything was lined up and it just for me it was the serendipity of having that sort of redundancy opportunity come up and then going for it and then obviously family backing you as well it's obviously nice to have support from friends and family uh, to give you that impetus to, to crack on nice i think when i told people what I was doing, I think they were they were completely sort of bamboozled by this. That essentially, I was going from the world of tech to being a washback salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same. I'm the same. I had no, 
no background in in fashion. I mean, anyone, any friend will tell you I have no fashion sense. Um, less so even uh, eyewear. So I didn't really care for sunglasses, to be honest. Uh, you know, and, until I started thinking of it as an idea, I just had a pair of sunglasses like everyone else in their drawer, um, and maybe got a, a new pair almost yearly because you'd end up breaking the ones you had and or scratch the lenses and stuff. And but it was really the um, you know for me parlor was formed on a cause it was i didn't sort of go out there and say i want to create an eyewear business that was i could be a t-shirt it could have been anything um but because my the sort of the emphasis of what i wanted to do the purpose was was eye care in africa so we can talk about that shortly yeah. but uh i wanted to create um, a brand or product that leveraged uh the impact that we we're creating uh, on eye care in africa and obviously in a, in a sort of clear marketing sense, it would be good to continue that um, sort of communication. So a bit like the Tom Shoes model, you know, buy some shoes, give some shoes. So we would buy some sunglasses and we would provide grants into, into eye, care, eye care projects. So, but yeah, I came from a, a position of zero knowledge of the market um, and, and more of zero, zero knowledge of setting up your own business. So yeah, I had, I had a lot to learn. I mean, yeah, likewise again. But so to that point, how, where do you start? So, you know, you're not a designer or you're not coming from a fashion background. So, so when you started out with this mission and this, and this plan, I, where the hell did you sort of kickstart things and say, these are the sunglasses that I'm going to produce? Yeah. So, well, actually, so my first conversation was with VisionAid overseas. So they're a charity based sort of near Gatwick. Because what I needed to do was understand how we could actually create change on the ground in Africa. And I was never going to be able to do that you know, through my own roots. It was to, to hook up with a charity partner and get them to create that impact through our grants. So that was an important conversation because without that, it kind of the fundamental basis of what we wanted to do was not, not in play. And then, yeah, it was a case of uh, networking the hell out of your friends and finding out who knows a, a designer or who knows a factory or, or, or whatever. And it's yeah you'll be surprised how many people just know someone who knows someone and then and then all of a sudden you're connected to somebody maybe three sort of connections away who perhaps designs or or got their own eyewear business and uh you just start asking questions and understanding uh understanding it all but you also learn as well i mean we've we've changed factories a few times we've uh in fact i've changed designer as well once but it's yeah getting those sort of fundamental core elements in place really was was just down to networking and you know using linkedin and the various platforms potentially uh to see where it gets one thing i will add is is being a brand that has purpose so to speak uh you find that the community is far more receptive to you and, and sort of trying to help you because there's a bigger play going on here. Not you know you're not just a, a a brand out there that's just trying to make as much money from sunglasses. That's not what we're here for. We're here for planet and people and profit. As you know, profit is the the least of my. Well, it has to be. Obviously, it has to happen at some point. But we we've never made a profit as a as a business yet. We're getting very close now. But uh, fundamentally, the way we set up, that's just something that will come in in due course. So we have to ensure that the network and the people around us are strong and, and that those people have been so fantastic in you know, helping leverage our situation. And uh, as I say, perhaps it wouldn't have been such an easy environment if we were just out there to, to maximise profit on making sunglasses. Yeah, you made the exact point that I was going to say as well. So I think, firstly, from our experience there, there's definitely a lot of curiosity when starting a business um, and, and people 
want to get to know what you're doing, who you are, that type of thing, which definitely helps. And then on top of that, when you have, you know, uh, yeah, like you say, a purpose at the heart of what you're doing, then, yeah, we, we found that people are always super helpful. And, and that's been a similar approach for us with 195 in that we've, um, who do we know or who do we know that other people know that will be able to support and help us. And that's, that's been our, really our approach since, since we launched in 2019. Mm, mm, fantastic. Yeah, no, it's, uh, so yeah, certainly that's, that's definitely been something that I, I think being a, being a, a brand that's kind of a business for good, so to speak, uh, it's a real advantage in this, in this current environment. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of the, the, the kind of, I guess, one of the real central sort of core foundations of Parlour is, is the Give Back program and, and working with communities and teams in Africa. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that in terms of your experience that led to that point and ultimately like what that looks like today in that program itself. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, why did I choose Africa? Uh, I, uh, I mean, that's a continent, it's not even a country, but um yeah, ostensibly, I've been traveling, I've been lucky enough to travel in my earlier years to a number of places uh, across Africa. Um, and and I kind of really fell in love with the various countries that I'd visited and the, uh, you know, the people I've met and just the culture. And obviously, clearly, all the sort of the beautiful places like the Maasai and the Serengeti uh, and that kind of stuff. So, um, I don't know, a soft spot is probably one for a better word for, for Africa. And um, you know, I also realized at the same time that Africa is one of the most disadvantaged countries when it comes to eye care. Um, in fact, I think there's a stat from the IAPB, which is Africa has 73% more blind and visually impaired uh, people, population than anywhere else in the world. So it's kind of, if you want to start somewhere, you kind of start where the problem is, is the most exacerbated. And for me, the simplicity of a pair of spectacles, which can can really change uh, a life, whether that's a child in a, a school and looking at a blackboard or reading a book, or whether that's a woman, you know, threading a needle and being able to sew, um, it's it's that simple. A pair of glasses can can achieve that for you, uh, or corrective surgery as well. And I just like that. It just for me, that was a fundamental. There's a problem, and there's something we can do. Whether that's through uh, helping uh, refurbish vision centres or doing outreach projects uh, in schools. So we've just done one this year in Ethiopia or just providing vital equipment, which which is, you know, it's quite funny. Those little tonometers, when you go to the optician's, those little kind of puffy things they do in your eyes, they're about £3,000. Um, so, so uh, yeah, it's providing equipment and, and it's long-term solutions. It's not about just sort of dumping glasses in local areas and, and clearing off it's setting up systems and working with local government i mean this isn't part of working directly it's through the charity vision aid overseas so ensuring that this is all done in the correct correct way and i always wanted you know i wanted this connection to africa to be a lot deeper so our cases for example we work with four female weeding communities in uh, bogotanga upper east ghana and they make our cases and recycled plastic waste and water sachets. So again, using or reusing plastic uh, that would otherwise be destined to landfill. But the important thing really here is that climate change has meant that they, the sort of the elephant grass or straw that we'd normally weave with, um, drought has meant that they no longer really can access that locally and they would normally have to travel you know, hours um, to go and harvest it. And for women traveling alone, there's the inherent dangers of, of doing that. So again, by, by, by providing them plastic materials to weave with on their doorstep we're actually helping on, on, on different levels in that sense too so you know where we can it's it's always trying to connect back 
um, to our, I mean, Parlor itself comes from Impala, which is a native African antelope. Uh, and all our frame names are African names. Uh, again, it just relate to nice, positive uh, sort of African words. So it's it's always been that. And we've we've we wanted to try and keep it quite um, focused in that sense. Pardon the pun. Um, going forwards. I love the mission. I think I think what you're doing is absolutely incredible. So was it really a case then of actually meeting people back when you were traveling? That was the real catalyst for you wanting to to drive a change or a positive change. Yeah, it was just when I've been when I've been um, in. I went to Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, and you'd stop. I, don't, I did one of you know I did a few of these overland trips where you sort of in a truck and you sort of you tend to t- you tend to camp rather than. You know, not sort of staying in hotels and cities, you kind of get out there a bit. And so you kind of, you know, you're in, in and around these communities, which are in the middle of nowhere. And, and everyone sort of comes out and, and sort of come say hi, or there's a football, you know, suddenly, you know, we bring a few footballs with us. So suddenly there's a football out on the pitch and everyone's, everyone's kicking a ball around mums, dads, kids, boys, girls, whatever. Uh, and it, do you know what? I look back and I think, uh, you know, there's, they've, there's very few of the materialistic stuff that we, we have you know, nowadays in the UK or anywhere in the, in, the, in, the, in the modern world. And yet there was something that made me think that whole simplicity of just enjoyment over a few fundamental things. I sometimes wonder if we've gone a bit too far in our, in our world of, of screens and stuff and, and, and people being too engaged in, in other, uh, other content and rather than just enjoying being out playing with you know playing with a i remember in ethiopia there's uh bicycle rims and a stick and kids will be trying to see how far they can roll the bicycle rim down down the street and it's just, it was just yeah just amazing and 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 yet uh there's no want for anything there's no envy or anything like that and yet i still felt that with a pair of glasses or you know, spectacles there is a chance there's an opportunity for the you know to for, to sort of break the potential cycle of poverty that a lot of people uh, live in and so it was yeah it was kind of a very strong call to action for me to feel that um or a real connection to those people that I've met and, and felt that this was the most or the easiest way to to channel uh my kind of uh, my, my want to give something back and and, and spectacles and say uh, or corrective surgery felt like the the best route to do that love the story and I think I think even more so now, maybe than pre-Brexit, pre-pandemic, that there's, there's a, what you're sort of saying is like there's a, there's a huge purpose and a huge value in that. Where the the planet feels like a smaller place in the last couple of years, you know, there's that 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 ability to be able to get out there to meet new people, experience a new culture. You know, that's really what has been the factor to drive change or for, for you to sort of make a you know make a drastic change in in your career and and, and have a positive impact. Yeah, and and just to, you know to add, you know, I feel very very privileged to to be able to do that. Uh, you know, I've come from a a background which has afforded me be able to be able to try and do something and make a change. And um, you know, I, I just don't. It's not a vanity project here, I don't, but I just don't want to leave this planet feeling like I I, I let this whole thing happen and, and not had a go myself at trying to provide my own uh, my own solution. Yeah. I think that's absolutely clear that it's definitely not a vanity project. It's, it's very apparent the the kind of the passion and love that you poured into this. I was keen to get a bit deeper and sort of chat a bit more about the actual products themselves, the sunglasses. I noticed on your website that you refer to them as sustainable design. Yes, so I'm keen yep. to understand what that means and, and ultimately sort of how you consider, you know, the planet alongside your other sort of programs for give back as well. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, I guess, when I first launched in, say, 2016, we used acetate for our frames. Acetate is is a kind of superior material in most high-end frames, but it is quite plastic-based. It has got, you know, there is elements of, of sort of wood pulp in there, so there is some organic elements in there, but it's not particularly high. But the good news is, I mean, bioacetate is a is a material that sort of appeared, um, and I think you'll be seeing on a lot more sites in due course, um, is a material that's sort of sprung up. I'd say certainly in the last five years, it's definitely had more prevalence. And the reason for this is that um, it's you know, the plasticizers. So yes, you know, the bioacetate material, it needs plasticizers added to it to make it into the kind of constituent material to, to set in the material that it needs to set in in order to, to be what it is. And um, But now you can, you can basically uh, get organically based uh, plasticizers, which means that the frame itself can then now biodegrade. So there's bioacetate, which is biodegradable. I will caveat um, that obviously that's in the right bio, you know, the, the right conditions. Um, so yes, they will eventually biodegrade in your garden if you bury them for long enough. <laughs> but the you know when when it, everyone talks about you know again, it's all I'm very conscious of of uh, you know greenwashing all this kind of stuff, but. The, so the acetate we use, which is Mazzucchelli, uh, bioacetate, which is probably the leading um, acetate manufacturer um, in the world, and 90% biodegradation within 115 days is is what qualifies for for that. But that has to be in the right industrial situation for for biodegradation. So clearly, not all of us, <laughs> or any of us have that in our back gardens or probably at home, uh, and very few of us probably have it at a council level too. So it's there and you'd hope that the setups at the back end of the system will improve in due course. It will, as I say, biodegrade if you were to compost them. But don't forget there's metal parts in a frame as well. And, and obviously that's a whole different story too. So uh, I am conscious of that. But yeah, the back to the, I've gone off on one there slightly, but the back to the main story is that, yeah, bioacetate is a far more prevalent material uh, nowadays. And it's good to see more people being encouraged. Um, it's taking a long lead time to get hold of. Uh, the material for next season, which is good in some ways, uh, bad from a personal point of view, but good that it means there's so much demand for it right now. So clearly the message is getting through and you'd hope that the suppliers will therefore produce more and more. Um, so that's positive. And then for our lenses, we use a, a more eco-based lens, uh, which is made from 39.5% castor bean. So again, an organic component to our lenses, uh, which means we're having to draw on, you know, draw on less um, sort of uh, non-renewable resource for our for our materials. So I feel we've got our product in a good place. We're using the sort of the most, I guess, uh, sustainable materials that we can use right now. There is work, obviously, to be done in the industry. It'd be great if I could tell you that bioacetate meant there's no oil-based material in the in it, but it's I think it's a roughly about sixty-eight percent uh, organically based. And the other 32% is still uh, oil-based material. So it's not perfect, but um, the industry is definitely moving and shaking. So that's good to see. And I think it's the sort of the small indies like us that are, are kind of prompting the change. And, you know, hopefully one day some of the bigger guys in the market will feel like, okay, well, we're taking a bit of our market share now and they'll, they'll start changing as well. So I'm a big fan of grassroots causing change towards the top of the chain. So as well as obviously people at the top of the chain supporting the grassroots as well, of course. Um, yeah, so it's in terms of our product, that's that's where we're looking. Obviously, all our packaging is, is either recycled or upcycled, even our point of sale. 
Um, so we're not quite plastic free in that sense. There is obviously bits of elements of plastic in the lenses and 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 still in the in the frame, but it's uh, it's getting there. You know, we could offset our our plastic if we wanted to. But I don't think that's again. I, I prefer to put pressure on ourselves just to be making sure we're using the best that's in market and the most progressive in terms of innovation towards being more sustainable. You, you, you kind of make a really interesting point because I think this is always a challenge in the industry we work in. And I know that we, we work with different materials, but at that same time, there's that need for easy and safe disposal because ultimately we have to accept most products do have an end of life. So to your point around like biodegradable and, and, and the challenges with that, but then at the same time, there's also that need to produce good quality, durable, long lasting products so that, you know, we're not promoting or, or actually ending up exacerbating the, the issue of overconsumption. We're different, different industries, but definitely face the, uh, the same sort of challenges or conundrums between both of those requirements. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and from our point of view, we want to provide the best materials um, and the best manufacturing to ensure they last as long as possible. But we'll also, in years to come, or not in years to come, but on, on the sort of the roadmap, we want to look at almost like a refurb and where we can take back, you know, if you've had a frame for a couple of years and we can maybe provide a refurb service, something like that. We have in place currently a, a take back scheme so that if you buy a pair of sunglasses from us, We'll take up to any old frames, any three old frames that you might have. So, you know, they don't have to be ours. Hopefully they're not. Um, uh, but everyone's got a frame lang- languishing in the bottom of their drawer. And that comes back to our warehouse. And then we work with TerraCycle. And then so what happens to those? They get broken down into plastic parts and metal parts. Uh, the metal makes is, is, is made back up into sort of nuts and bolts and screws. And the, uh, the plastic parts uh, are made up into sort of, you know, road cones and watering cans and the like. So... Yeah, it's a positive end of life um, that we feel responsible. I mean, for me, yeah, the mission will be to we take more frames out of the system than we're, we're putting in ourselves. And the ones we are putting in are as, as good as we can possibly make them. Love that. Really like it indeed. On the topic of your, you know, your sunglasses and, you know, we often think about the materials and, and, and talk about the environmental sustainability of, of, of the actual products themselves. But the production process is, is also kind of a key consideration around this. And I, I noticed that you you moved your production, I think it was earlier this year, to Italy. So I was keen to understand, you know, what was the what was the priority behind behind doing that? Yeah, it was actually, yeah, last year during lockdown, which was quite easy to start moving stuff around. But um, yeah, I managed to get, uh, I think I got out on 3rd of March last year, which is uh, when I, by the time I was flying back from, it was Italy, I think I was on a flight with about five people and everyone was <laughs> properly masked up. It was like one of the last last flights out before they, they closed things. But um, wow. yeah, look, I, prior to Italy, I was manufacturing in in China with a very good ethically audited factory, uh, which obviously was an important part of my factory decision. Um, but there's really two issues there. One is that I was shipping frames a long way to, to get them to the UK. Um, so I wasn't particularly happy with my carbon footprint for that. Uh, and then the other real benefit of working with Italy is that we can work in small batch production. So we can produce a, you know, a style and, and if you want to do just produce 30 of those pieces. Um, whereas, you know, I don't know if you work, do you work in China or, or Europe? I don't know where you work. Yeah, so we're manufacturing China with, again, just one manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. So you'll sometimes find the minimum order quantities are a lot higher. So what it affords us by working in Italy is is the opportunity to work with small batch production and 
only effectively produce what we need to produce. Um, and the perfect scenario would be getting ourselves into a pre-order system in the long term where we can, you know, where people can order in advance and then they arrive, we sell out, then we make some more. Uh, so trying to trying to turn that whole retail model on its head a little bit, we're obviously a long way to go on that. But um, it just means that we've got less stock, you know, on a shelf sat there for, you know, for a season or, or whatever. We, we can, I'd much rather we have, uh, sold out in on our sunglasses or coming back soon. And again, I think the people that shop our sunglasses uh, will respect that, the fact that they may not be able to get their sunglasses next week and that's okay, that's fine. Uh, they'll be coming back in another two months when we've got a new order in and, and they can wait uh, and wait for them to come in. Um, so that's, again, it's changing some consumer behavior there. But I think it's, um, I think overall, it's a better practice for us uh, with eyewear. Um, yeah, so that's that was fundamentally the two two be two be plus whether you know whether you like it or not. I mean, I've got a lot of time for Chinese manufacturing personally. I think as they do very good quality eyewear, uh, gets a very undeserved a bad rap. I think, but I think that's right at the bottom end of of, of, of production. Uh, I think they're very good in in all kinds of uh, manufacturing. Um, but that, where we were, were based in Italy, it's, it's all handmade by a small sort of family kind of uh, operation we've just been out there filming them the last couple of weeks um and that sort of extra detail to craftsmanship in terms of that sort of family connection and showing the kind of i don't know the love and the passion that goes into it there's there's a nice story to be woven there and i think um that's something when when people are looking at our website for example it, it's a missing piece for us because i think sunglasses or glasses can look quite one-dimensional on a, on a website and don't really come to life but we've got a bit of film showing the the whole sort of piece in action i think that will really help kind of provide that quality proposition that perhaps we've been lacking in terms of just communicating that across effectively yeah i have seen a lot of the videos that you have on your website i do really like them i think it's it's um a really powerful way to sort of tell your story yeah it's I say, if i don't know which ones you've seen but a lot of them aren't they're not about sunglasses um a lot of them are about the makers, the weavers in our, our cases, some of the beneficiaries of, of uh, our spectacles. Um, and one we even did was it was Jib, who runs the NGO, Careful Basket, who we do our cases for. It was, that was really his story, and we wanted to bring his story to life. Yeah, he, but over here in Brighton, he's got it, he lives quite close to me down here in Brighton. He's got a very humble little table with baskets. Uh, and I just thought it was a very good story to show is, is what was behind his baskets. And then we kind of we filmed half it over here in Brighton, then half back over in Ghana, and where, you know, it's a different world, and it's kind of, uh, and it just shows you the effort that goes into making something. And I think that's, you know, I'm sure you'll agree. I think a lot of that is lost nowadays in in communications. People forget just what goes into the product. It just seems to be a huge. Uh, it's all based on price, and that's completely the wrong way to look at what the value of a product is. Yeah, we, we it's been a, sort of a fairly similar theme throughout the podcast and we, we talked about this with um with neat a cleaning company in that there you know you, you walk down a supermarket shelf and you almost take for granted the stories behind these products because you're almost running on autopilot so you're right would you um would you class yourself as being a fashion brand so we th there's two ways of looking at this so if you look at it so our, our start our sunglasses are british designed got a really good designer that works uh, with us um but I'm very conscious of not creating sunglasses which have a very fast fashion appeal to it or, or very high high fashion in the sense of yeah. 
being a bit out there and wacky because again that doesn't really tally with our our strategy of being sustainable we don't want to create sunglasses that are in one season out the next so um if you look at the website you'll see that the majority i mean we have got you know we want people to have a bit of personality with, uh, with frames on their faces so it's not, you know, we're not all just wayfarers in 50 colors but it's um but it's it's about it's about having that balance and uh but certainly moving away from anything that's kind of remotely fast fashion because again that just doesn't work with our principles of of sustainability um we don't want people to have a frame in their drawer after a year that ends up going into landfill because it's no longer uh on fashion uh and in terms of colorways we we tend to use uh, nature as our inspiration. So again, you'll see a lot of the references to our colors being flint, quartz, or amber, and all these kind of things. Um, so it's drawn from that sort of uh, the palette of colors. So um, whether that's not fashionable, I don't know. I think I think the main, the, the, main principle, the main idea is actually we're producing our sunglasses that don't go out of fashion. So it's, you know, it goes to that principle of having a pair that lasts you years and years, and not feeling that you're outdated, and it's it's creating a you know a dependable frame uh, which looks good and and yeah just just uh, keeps on going. <laughs> and the reason why I asked that question is because I think you have struck this really nice balance. So your your sunglasses look very stylish; they look great and they look awesome. Um, but obviously, they have that 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 purpose behind them. So you've you've, you've sort of struck that balance ideally. So you said you had like a a, a British designer. Where where do they seek inspiration for new designs? I'm often curious about this. Well, it's it's weird in the in the well. I don't know. You may have the same issues with your with yourself, but it's with with eyewear. There is a finite amount of designs. So it's it's not a case of hey, we've cracked it. We've got this new design that's never been seen before. You know, everyone will have seen our design in some capacity. I feel actually that said, I feel that we've got a couple that that are feel quite parlour. So we've got a we've got a collection, and and that's actually probably one of the mistakes I made early on in our iteration was just producing what I thought was a classic palette of of frames of of you know here's a Wayfarer, here's a Clubmaster, here's a Cat Eye, all this kind of stuff. And then actually, when you think about it, anyone else who's shopping for those things, they're going to see thousands of those. So what makes them go for your Cat Eye over and above? or the thousands of other cat eyes. So actually having some core frames that you can really say are your your frames is actually quite important. But even then, they're not going to be, you know, discernibly too much different from from other competitors just because, say, there's a there's a finite finite number of uh, styles out there. So look, we there's some big trade shows that go on every year. There's Silmo in Italy and there's uh, sorry, Silmo in Paris, uh, Mido in Italy, and those two are the, probably the main ones. And yeah, we can go and, and look at frames that we see there and, and have a think and a chat. Um, but principally, we also work with, obviously, with our manufacturers in Italy. They've got some frame shapes that they have, and, and we look at some of those um, too. So it's an amalgam, really, of ideas. And, and I look at how the overall collection, where I feel there might be a gap in the collection, where we may need to put another one in or think about, let's say, most of our well, 75% of our audience are actually females. So again, thinking, so we're going to be launching a slightly more narrow frame later in the year. And in response to some customers who just say, look, I've got a, a slightly smaller shaped head. Um, love it if you could produce a frame that, that can work for it. So it's just, it's again, thinking slightly strategically as well. So giving customers what they want. Um, but also this kind of amalgam of, of working with my designer, inspiration from the shows and, and the guys in Italy, and also my thoughts on where I feel what we need to have a, 
uh, maybe a, a pair in the collection which we're not really covering off. Yeah, I think it's not easy to strike that balance for sort of unisex design, but again, I think you do it. You do it very well indeed. Yeah, thank you. It's it's not easy. It's it, it and you're never going to make all people happy all of the time. Uh, but I think a lot of that is down to understanding your audience. So again, that insight of of seventy five percent of our audience being female. So there's no point in me doing hundreds of male sort of sort of designed or you know frames that have got sort of slightly more masculine overtones because actually our predominant audience are are women and we do carry more male styles now um but often we're finding that's perhaps women buying it for a partner or or a male partner uh as a gift um i I do think that the world of sustainability is still very much dominated by female uh shoppers uh and that there's a bit of a lag in in the sort of the the male shopper coming through and, and buying sustainably um you only have to go to a lot of a and I can speak at events. I tend to feel like I'm in a minority uh, in terms of people in the audience. So very much, again, playing to that insight that women are our key core audience. Yeah, and probably see the same thing on our side as well. That um, whilst we are a unisex brand, in terms of customers, they do seem to be sort of more heavily skewed towards a female, female audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the one thing I'm really keen to get into and understand a bit more is, is about your... Um, your, your B Corp certification. So, well, first and foremost, obviously, congratulations on receiving that. An amazing achievement. I think one of the things that we're really quite keen to try and do in this podcast is to understand what these types of things mean. So I, I said that you often might see things like the B Corp certification or 1% for the planet on people's websites and different company websites. So in your case, what does what does that journey to become B Corp certified look like? And then ultimately, as a customer, what, what does that mean for them buying from you? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we certified uh, last year, and uh, in terms of the process, it's it is a a pretty tough process, but really one I thought was really valid for us as a business. Um, there's a lot of certifications out there. You know, you can be GOTS, you can be you know vegan friendly, all all these kind of different things, um, fair trade, etc. But for us as an eyewear brand, very few resonate with us um, in terms of really accurately kind of reflecting our, our our sort of sustainable or our, our planet and people credentials but actually the b court one does because it actually looks at every single part of your business and therefore will verify you according to your strengths but also it, you get to acknowledge your weaknesses as well and i think that's really important because that's obviously where you work harder and, and look to improve your score uh, every three years because every three years you, you kind of recertify so we did that. Well, I did. It was basically, I started that again. Then start of lockdown, <laughs> March, twenty twenty. So uh, a bit more time on my hands, perhaps, to to think about it. And um, I was lucky. Uh, I had a, a few contacts within the B Corp world or B leaders. So there's people who out sort of go out there, sort of almost help on on behalf of B Corp to kind of with your journey uh, in the application process. Um, and there's a there's a couple of the. B Corp companies around here who's who had already certified and I, I, I connected with a couple of their team members who who kind of again talked through that process so again a lot of assistance um because there's the BIA there's a there's the impact assessment form which I think anyone can access they used to be free to access but it might be now but it's 100 pounds but don't quote me on that but I think you can go in there and have a look at all the questions that are involved and then you will see actually it is quite involved uh, and the the artist is actually trying to understand what they're trying to get out of that question too. So, 
it does take quite a lot of time and interpretation, certainly going back and forwards, certainly um, making you check on some of your own stats and carbon outputs and, and making, you know, making calculations that you perhaps haven't made before. And then, and then, yeah, going to a sort of a verification stage. And it took about nine months, I think, um, for that all to happen. Um, there was perhaps a four month wait in between because of uh, even last year it was getting busy. I, I mean, I know UK last year was the fastest growing B Corp community. And then I think you know, this year, even more, it's um, I think there's maybe 500 plus B Corps now in the UK. And globally, we're up to almost about 5,000. 5, so so it's it has become a real, um, you know, it's, it's started to really kind of uh, have a lot of visibility. Um, and which is great and it, it there's there's a lot of benefits there's what's called the beehive which when you become a beehive you join the beehive and there's so much learning in there which i can i can use for my own business so we've committed to being um net zero for our carbon 2030 and they've got a whole piece on that and there's lots of stuff on how to qualify my scope three carbon out all these kind of things which are just some of these impossible questions so it really that's a really nice community and plus obviously there's other b corps in there so we have a b corp month in march i think and we all kind of support each other's businesses and stuff so there's some real benefit of, of doing that um i think what we'll see is the consumer benefit coming through at some point i don't think it's hugely visible yet in the uk i still think if you probably walk up to 20 people maybe one person might know what b corp stands for uh, whereas if you look at the US, I think that's a more developed market. I think it started in 2007, I think, with people like Patagonia. So there, that is people there are more familiar with what a B Corp means. And they use the logo a lot more on their products or in their stores or whatever to, to emphasize their, their credibility. Um, I think the UK, we just lack, oh, sorry, lack, lag uh, that market somewhat. But it will come. And I think in a couple of years' time, again, if you're looking at the speed at which the B Corp movement is happening in the uk then that momentum will, will will channel through to the point that people start seeing that logo more and more and then ask the question and then once they find out that what it stands for and that it's kind of hopefully <laughs> aligns with their values they will start shopping on that basis um and i know even now since since we became a b corp i now use three different suppliers who are b corps i've changed my suppliers purely because uh they're b corps so i know they're, to, to me in my head they're already a company for for good and providing their their you know the rates or their services are as good as the incumbent, then there's no reason why I wouldn't want to change them. So, yeah, that's a long rambling answer to to your question, but uh, it is a quite it is a it is a, a long process. It can be arduous, but that's for good reason. You know, it, we don't want it to be a situation where every company that goes through it becomes a B Corp. Otherwise, it just becomes a, a an easy ticket. So I, I think I can't remember if if is it. Again, I'm terrible with quotes, so perhaps don't quote me. But I think it's 90% of companies that start the journey drop out or or, or don't don't make it. So you know it, that emphasises the uh, I guess the, the situation there. But do you know what? If you persist and you be, you become a B Corp, I think it's going to stand you in really good stead in the future. From your side, it's it's definitely then in that case a level of your commitment and your passion because as a small team to be able to make this happen and run a business the right way with that kind of uh, accreditation and certification, then it speaks volumes for, for what you've achieved since since 2016. Well, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, I, I do have to thank lockdown for some of that extra time it gave me. Uh, and, and as I say, the, the, uh, the other people, um, yeah, the other people that uh, 
within the B Corp community that gave up some time to help provide some mentoring and, and help me with some of the questions. And but I guess because we do a lot of giving and and uh, a lot of our impact is in that space, that's an easy thing to quantify. So that that really helped us. Um, the whole sort of raft of questions that we don't because we don't have enough employees to kind of answer that part of the scope yet. Um, so you know. The bigger we get, the, we will unlock that, those questions and, and that will open us up to more more points in the future. So that's the thing. It's a great carrot and stick. I, you know, we've Yes, we've got our, our B Corp score, but I want that to, to improve every year. I think that's in everyone's uh, interest to do that. And um, that, I, I certainly know there's, there's a whole bunch of things that we can do better. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a club for life. You say you have to recertify and uh, it's important that you, you, you keep your membership. Well, Congratulations, all the same, because I think it's um, yeah, it's a it's a testament to, to what you've achieved thus far. One more question for you um, regarding regarding Parler, and then I want to get into the the uh, the practicalities and a bit of advice for anybody that might be listening who who you can help out. Um, so I know you've already mentioned about products wise that that are sort of coming next year, but I'm keen to also understand what is the purpose for you and ultimately for Parler Eyewear going forward as well. Yeah, look, it's the bigger picture. I say getting to profitability is always a, a helpful target because then, then I know I can support myself within the business. But um, yeah, beyond that, it's it's really look, the the more we achieve, the more in terms of uh, the bigger we get as a business, it's, it's completely connected to our impact in, in terms of what we're doing uh, in Africa and with weavers and, and all the other sort of areas we're doing as well. So it really is that kind of fundamental equation. And, and you know, we're speaking to Vision Aid overseas recently. There's a number of vision centers that, that could be made and built uh, in time. And I'd love to be able to turn around and say, okay, look, yeah, if you're going to do one in Burkina Faso next year in this area, we, we'll, we'll pay for that. And that's a pure, that's a, a genuine, uh, long-standing uh, solution. We, we did one in Zambia in 2017, uh, and it sees about 7,500 patients a year. So serving a region, I, haven't, I think it's at 750,000 people. So, uh, sorry, not 750, uh, 75,000 people. It was 750. I can't remember actually. I had to look that one up. Um, but it's, it's, it serves a lot of it serves a lot of people. But Zambia, case in point, is that uh, I was speaking to the the uh, sort of the chief uh, optician for that vision centre, and he was saying back in 2014 they only had they had less than 10 optometrists for the whole country, and that's for a country that's something like four times the size of the UK. So it just you know we can go outside and head down to the opticians. That's not so easy uh, in Zambia. So um, it just goes to show the, the, you know, the impact that having a vision centre can have. And uh, there's no reason that the, the bigger we get, this we can just create far more vision centres and these, these long-term solutions rather than it being a, a sticking plaster here today, gone tomorrow kind of solution, which doesn't really work for anyone. So that really is the fundamental aim of the business. Yes, we will we'll, we'll increase into blue light lenses and, and spectacle frames, but that's just a, a practical kind of business decision. That's an important part of the business, of course. And we just need to get more famous and, and sort of get our brand more visible around the world. Very easy to do that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And it's fair, I mean, your purpose itself probably leads quite nicely into one of the questions I wanted to ask you around, uh, you know, some advice that you might be able to give back today. So for, uh, for somebody else who might be starting their own business or have aspirations to launch their own business and like you've done sort of place that, that give back at the heart of what they're doing 
sort of how would you advise to really start that process so if, if if for example you might not have the relationships with with an ngo or a charity or you might not have been on the ground to meet certain people so how do you really go about that and then secondly i don't really know where this came from but i i, I often sense that there's a, um an aspect of skepticism towards charity donations that is this money being spent in the right way and if it's not in front of me do i really know uh, how this money's been used so Again, if you're if you're somebody that's passionate to do that, how do you uh, you know what what should you be looking out for? How do you uh, make sure that donations and and uh, are used in the right way? Yeah, two really good questions. And uh, the first thing is sometimes you just have to bite the bullet in terms of uh, approaching charity. Vision Aid didn't know before I came to them. I had a phone call, but it was a nice phone call from their point of view. It was me saying, "Look, you know, I want to give you some money effectively." So it's it's most charity is going to be quite effective uh, uh, in terms of uh, positively responding. What is important is how you structure that giving. Um, so it's really important. So we've got a, an agreement that is, that is grant money into projects. It's not money into the charity uh, and it being spent on, you know, sales costs or admin costs or whatever, because to me, that's not, I need to be authentically telling people what the impact of their purchase is. And that wouldn't be authentic. So they provide a report every, um, well, it's every year at the moment, but hopefully every six months showing what the, uh, the project where the money has gone to. So I say we, we just did a, back in the summer, we did a school project in Ethiopia where all the kids were screened, all the teachers were screened, and some of the teachers were trained up into how to do screenings. So kind of an overall benefit for that um, particular school. Uh, I get all the reports to that and I've got photos and all that kind of stuff comes through, which we will now and again put up onto our onto our social platform. So to connect people to that core story. And then the weaver, you know, the weavers is interesting because this really is about trust and, and also respect. So I went out to see the weavers in 2018. I felt it was really important that they saw who I was and I could meet them and uh, and talk with them and and get an understanding of the kind of relationship we wanted. Uh, unfortunately, they had been burned by the white man, so to speak, before getting them to weave stuff, uh, baskets and whatever, uh, and not paying them. And uh, so that trust is a really, really important uh, level. And, and by going out, meeting and having a conversation makes so much difference. And, um, you know, I can't go out every year, but uh, Jib, who say runs the NGO that I work with, uh, he, he he and I will sometimes do a uh, a WhatsApp call. So they haven't, you know, some have got phones with WhatsApp function on it, so we can connect and have a chat in that way. But it's you know we we sort of led onto that is as you've mentioned earlier. If you look at the video content that's on our Vimeo page or on the website, even you'll see most of that video is is basically talking about our supply chain or our impact because I really think actually well not actions but the videos speak louder than words we can say we're doing it but let's show let's show that happening let's show that being done that's what I think those videos do they bring to life the fact that we are genuinely authentically doing this um, and it is about creating trust and relationships and and taking a very long-term view about it you know b corp rewards companies that work long term with their suppliers and you can see why because it's about building and growing and 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 getting the best practice and get the best the best quality and and seeing what else we can do and you know with the weavers going back to what you're saying you know the, the bigger the, be the bigger we can get the more impact we can have you know we're not just looking at 
paying them a good wage for their, the cases they make. It's also knowing what will help the communities as well. So uh, when I was out there, um, they were very keen to have a, uh, some wells built. And so we're kind of in a position where we're looking at uh, building a, a well for one of those communities. I think it's like a seven hour, seven hour, sorry, seven mile round trip uh, to get water. And so it's, it's, it's learning those sort of stories too. Um, and looking beyond it, just being a pure uh, sort of working relationship, it's providing more than that. So that's the trust. Trust, I say, is one of those very important things. To go back to the first point you made, I think that's a really interesting sort of piece of advice there that ultimately in donating, you're donating to specific projects, not to the charity in general. And I think probably a lot of people aren't really aware that A, that's the case maybe on your side, but actually B, that if they wanted to do it themselves, that that would be a super practical uh, way to be able to give back and, and have that degree of confidence that it's been spent for the right reasons. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And look, maybe I've been lucky that we we did spend quite a lot of time and it's not easy just to go and fly out to a country and, and video and all the costs involved in that. But it, it was it's very, very key to us. And in terms of our marketing spend, for us, that you know, that's what it is. It's not about Facebook ads. It's actually producing really nice quality content that tells our story, uh, which is far stronger than my view than showing a pair of sunglasses on someone's news feed in, in Facebook. So it's why we've gone out to Italy to show the, the makers there. That's just, again, important to tell that story because it gets under the skin of our, our brand. And, you know, I think particularly in this time and place now where there are so many brands that may have their eco or their conscious collection, let's say, uh, and, and they get all the headlines and actually their conscious collection might be 2% of their business, but the rest of their business is run terribly. So there is a lot of greenwashing going on. Um, and so I think it's something you mentioned on your, your site, which is a core value is is being real and real as authenticity. And I think if you stick to that core value, that's, that's the thing that's going to really stand you out from a competition because you can't fake being authentic. <laughs> um, the two words don't connect together. So... We've always done it the hard way and been authentic from the start, which has meant stretching our budgets and our costs to, to tell these stories and, and to do so much giving right from the start. It's why we're not profitable, because we give so much on our way as, as we grow. But uh, the more we connect with people, then the better it will become. And, um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's the way we set up. And I think that's probably, it's like that for most sustainable business. It is, it is I'm, not, I'm under no illusion that it's, it's a hard slog I was probably like everyone else when back in the, when I launched, I think, oh, you know, two years time, we'll be doing this number of sunglasses and et cetera. But there's all those battles of, of visibility and competing with everyone else in, in, in the world out there to try and break through and penetrate um, and really get that message through. And, and that's a art all of itself. And I don't think we've even got that right after five years. And there's still a heck of a lot more to be done. You know, we're just about to have our website rebuilt because it's a bit clunky and it's, you know, it's living off plugins and all kinds of stuff. But that will speed up our website and the UX and the user experience. So there's all these other things you have to think about as a business, not just the, all the sustainable stuff, but all the other kind of practicalities of running a business. And we're a small team, as you say, we're a very small team here. I'd like to think perfectly formed, of course, but <laughs> we're a very, very small team. And we can't always pull all the levers that other companies can go to. We can't just run out and grab 10 influencers to go and wear our sunglasses. We just have to do it carefully. But I think in doing so, being doing it carefully, being authentic, 
you bring in an audience who who understand that and appreciate that you i think you get a more loyal customer as a result the kind of the, kind of the big thing that i think i've almost taken away from speaking with you today john is is, is ultimately that i guess if parlor parlor eyewear was a stick of rock and it cut you in two then it's that it's that feeling that trust runs all the way through the business and that's between you and suppliers you and ngos but then ultimately you and customers as well and i think that's ultimately why you'll uh, you'll certainly win in the future as well well i definitely like the stick of rock analogy coming from brighton so that's, that's great <laughs> i'll have to get some part of rock made up or something but uh well yeah i think you're right i think it is it is just uh it is this element of trust and uh you know respect for the supply chain and but communicating all of this to our customers so that they can see for themselves uh, and equally making sure we've got a very good product. We, know we won't survive. It can be the most sustainable, ethical, whatever. But if our sunglasses are terrible, then maybe we're going to buy them. So again, it's making sure we've got extremely good mark, uh, product, which is you know, market leading in its price point or, or whatever we've chosen. And, and for us, we feel like we've got a, a really well-made product at that price point in the market. But having obviously all the sort of supporting materials of sustainability that sit behind that. And um, it's kind of... Probably this year uh, is probably the, you know, this summer is like the first time we've actually, I feel like we've got to that point. So it's taken five years and I'm not putting anyone off who is starting up their own business because I think eyewear is a particularly complicated um, market to start up in because there's so many manufacturing component parts. But it, it, it does take, a, it take a, a, a while. But I think if, you, if you're passionate about it and you're passionate about the cause and why you've set up, that's going to carry you through uh, all the way through to, to success. And I think, um, and that will always come across in the way you talk about your, your product to your brand to people, because you can hear the passion in people's voices when they get excited about what they're talking about. And we've all got ideas and passions. And I think, um, yeah, if, if that's something we can make the most of, and I think that will separate a lot of the sustainable businesses that are starting up today from some of those sort of slightly more dinosaur businesses that rely on, rely on price as their only uh, metric for, for reaching out to people. So if anybody's listening right now that, that is passionate to either support you, follow you, or buy a pair of, of your sunglasses, um, where can people find you, John? What's the best way to, to discover you? Well, clearly, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be winter by the, time, <laughs> by the time this podcast comes out. So not the best time to be seeing sunglasses. But, you know, maybe I'll go around shining torches in people's faces and seeing what I can do. But look, <laughs> if you're, you're interested in... Uh, uh, checking us out not the best thing you could do is actually come and come to our website and just join our newsletter for us that's where we can talk to you we it's not a newsletter that thrusts loads of product under your under your noses and talking about that you know our our, our strap line for the business is see the world better and that's not just about seeing the world better from a the you know from the people we're helping in in africa through the eye care it's not just the fact from literal fact that through sunglass lenses and protecting your eyes or even optical lenses that we're helping with your eyesight for, for any of our customers, but also in our in our newsletter, it's very much uh, the people we interview, etc. So, for example, uh, chief scientist about Reef Foundation, and we've done scientists on uh, microplastics and various people we meet. Who, yes, they talk about the problems that that are out there, but they're also talking about solutions. So, how they see the world better. So, it's just a very nice short piece of content uh, for your inbox, and you will get a ten percent discount as well if you sign up to our newsletter. So, that for me is the ask: uh, go to the website, wait for the pop up to come up or whatever, and, and come and come and join our newsletter. Yes, you can follow us on Instagram as well, of course, and. and like our pictures and comment and do all that kind of stuff. But uh, if you just want to join us on our journey, newsletter is the best place to be. 
And if you do buy some sunglasses, well, that's great. And, and do talk about us to your friends. John, you're an absolute gent. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, supporting Parler in the future going forward as well. I think you're going to do big things. Well, that's very kind, Alex. Uh, so pl- pleasure speaking to you and, and, and likewise speaking with another brand, which is, you know, its mission is is uh, business for good. And uh, I'm, I'm a great advocate of always being supportive of that environment. So certainly we'll, uh, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll interview you for our, our own website at some point and get people going to, to your site too. So yeah, much appreciated. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Have a good day. All the best. If you're still with me, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Purpose Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it interesting. If you did and you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I'd massively appreciate if you could take a minute to leave us a positive review. And if there's a friend or family member that might enjoy or benefit from listening to this, please share a link with them on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're curious to learn more about our eco-conscious travel goods, give us a follow on Instagram, which is at 195, or head to 195.com, where you can also get 10% off your first purchase when you sign up to our newsletter. And for each weekly podcast, you'll also find a blog post some highlights and learnings from the episode along with a full written transcript thanks again we'll speak soon